парой шли вдвоем, а фонарики горели. И при виде их на момент прийти, и сердца наши замляли. Hello and welcome to the SRB podcast, where in each episode we discuss Eurasian politics, culture and history. As always, I'm your host, Sean Guillory. The SRB podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and members of the SRB Table of Ranks, who give monthly contributions from anywhere between $5 to $25. If you'd like to support the podcast, go to my Patreon page at patreon.com slash Sean's Russia blog, or to the podcast website, srbpodcast.org, and hit that Patreon button and join the table of ranks. Many people are familiar with American Commodore Matthew Perry's expedition to open trade relations with Japan in the early 1850s. Less known is that a Russian expedition secretly set out on the same mission, The Russian novelist Ivan Goncharov was on this voyage, and he turned his impressions into a book, The Frigate Palada, which became a bestseller in Imperial Russia. In his travelogue, Goncharov recorded his encounters and observations of Southern Africa's Cape Colony, Dutch Java, Spanish Manila, Japan, and the British ports of Singapore, Hong Kong, and Shanghai. As my guest Adita Boyanovska shows, Out of Goncharov's book, Russia emerges as an increasingly assertive empire, eager to position itself on the world stage among its American and European rivals, and fully conversant of the ideologies of civilizing mission and race. Edita Boyanovska is a professor of Slavic languages and literatures at Yale University, specializing in 19th century Russian literature and intellectual history, empire, and nation in Russian culture. She's the author of Nikolai Gogol, Between Ukrainian and Russian Nationalism, and her new book is A World of Empires, The Russian Voyage of the Frigate Palada, published by Harvard University Press. Here's Adita Boyanovska. So first I want to just start off by having you introduce yourself. My name is Edita Boyanovska. I am professor of Slavic languages and literatures uh, at Yale University. Uh, I specialize in 19th century Russian literature and intellectual history, and I'm particularly interested in questions of empire and nationalism. I'd say, sort of broadly speaking, uh, my current work is devoted to sort of exploring um, uh, the place of the treatments of empire in Russian culture and also in to integrating Russian into accounts of European imperialism, out of which uh, it has been sort of sidelined. So you have this, this interesting new book that, that actually deals with a lot of these issues. It's titled A World of Empires, The Russian Voyage of the Frigate Palada, which does really does a deep dive into Ivan Goncharov's famous travel book, which I, I have to admit I never had heard of. So what inspired you to write a book about this, this travel account? So um, I kind of stumbled upon this project by chance. I basically read at some point in Gancharov's biography that he went on this incredible voyage around Africa and Asia. Uh, and so I kind of became curious. You know, I'm interested, as I mentioned, in questions of um, empire and imperialism. And I figured surely he'll have something to say about the various you know, um, imperial frontiers that he must have visited on this journey. So. Um, you know, I started reading the book and sure enough, he did have a lot to say about that. Uh, but um, at that point, I didn't really, I wasn't really plan, planning on writing a whole book about Goncharov's travelogue. It was basically going to be a uh, chapter in my larger ongoing project called Empire and the Russian Classics. So this was supposed to be sort of a chapter. But then as I kept working on it and sort of um, delving into the book and discovering all the fascinating things about it, it's kind of the, the, the text grew and grew and, you know, sort of 40,000 words into the project, I come to realize this is really not a chapter anymore. Um, so I decided to uh, make 
its own book about it. Um, and it actually wasn't only a question of length. Um, as I, you know, got deeper into the topic, it, um, I, I realized that this was a project of a different profile than the other chapters of this larger, you know, other book that I'm writing. Uh, this is a much more interdisciplinary sort of half and half history and literature type of project. Um, it wouldn't have really fit in its profile in that other book. So there were other reasons than length to make it into a separate project. And actually, I'm really um, gratified that now um, it's been about over a year since the book was published. I'm seeing uh, reviews come out of this book that are treated both as a work of literary criticism and as a work of history, actually. So this is kind of really um, a really cool thing for me. And basically, um, another reason why I decided to make it into its own book is that this is really not just a book about Russia, but rather as a, a book about 19th century world seen through Russian eyes. So, um, so these are some of the reasons why that sort of led me to to write this book. And and who was uh, Ivan Goncharov? Uh, Ivan Goncharov was uh, no, he's basically a uh, one of uh, 19th century uh, Russian classical writers. He's most known for uh, not for this book for Fregat Pallada, but for a um, novel Ablomov, um, uh, and he wrote other two. Uh, Two other novels, famous also, The Ordinary Story and The Precipice, but the Oblomov, Oblomov is really the main uh, novel for which he's famous. And interestingly, this is kind of a book about the paradigmatic Russian couch potato. So uh, it's fascinating that, you know, he would author that book, but also this, you know, participated in this incredible um, journey around, around the world. Um, another thing that's um, kind of unusual about him, slightly unusual, and I wouldn't say unprecedented, but maybe a, a little unusual, is the fact that Gantashov grew up in a family of merchants um, in um, the city of Simbirsk on the Volga River. So it's, it's a little different than most of Russian 19th century writers who tended to be noblemen or members of the intelligentsia. So he had a slightly different perspective on many of the issues um, uh, on the voyage. So um, after growing up in Simbirsk, uh, Gancharov moved to St. Petersburg. Uh, well, first he finished his university studies in Moscow, then he moved to St. Petersburg, began working um, as a government uh, official. And um, it is at that time that he became recruited for the Palada expedition. Uh, he worked as a, basically as, a, as an official in the Ministry of Finance's Department of Trade. Um, and then after the voyage, when he came back, um, he continued in that job for a little bit longer and then um, became a high-ranking censor. And he was actually pretty well respected for wielding his red pen with, uh, you know, minimum damage to the to Russian literature. Other than this uh, sea voyage, the other striking moment in his biography was his famous accusation of Ivan Turgenev in plagiarism. So um, it's a kind of a not entirely clear-cut uh, question, uh, but um, uh, I'd say that maybe Gancharov's case here has a bit of merit, even though it's a kind of a controversial uh, controversial issue. Hmm. Wow. <laughs> that, that, that I did not know. So... So th this this travel account is is like I like I said I hadn't heard of it and you probably rightly said that I'm not the only one um, and it really comes you know as as a travel this this frigid Palada being published in the mid 19th century it really falls within that whole genre of travel ethnography imperial voyages discoveries that we see of course the British are most famous for. So put this this travel account, Gunshot's travel account, within the wider context of travel books in the mid-19th, the late 19th century. Travel writing was an extremely rich and voluminous tradition in the 19th century, actually beginning in the 18th century and assisted uh, the age of exploration. Uh, so this was something that gave a huge boost to, to travel writing. Uh, you know, these books were selling like hotcakes. Hot they had huge print runs. Um, you know, open any thick journal and um, in, in, in you know nineteenth-century Russian thick journal, and there's a ninety-five percent chance you will find some travel account uh, in it. So this was an incredibly popular genre, very very well read. I mean, and it makes sense because this is how most people got to know about the wider world. This was before television and you know other forms of of, of communication. So. 
Um, this is also the type of writing that combined information and sort of um, and pleasure, right? It was a pleasurable, colorful yarn. So you learn something, but you have to have fun reading it. And many writers known today actually as primarily novelists were known to their initial, to their contemporaries as travel writers. And Mark Twain is uh, one such writer. And actually Gancharov, as I learned researching this project, um, uh, was similar in that regard, uh, because um, even though today most people have heard of his novel Oblomov, the, the travelogue that I, that I write about was um, much more widely read and much more popular, had many more editions, and it had a much, much bigger dissemination in the 19th century than the novel for which Goncharov is now canonized. So anyway, going back to the, to the, to the sort of larger context of the travelogues, you know, Dickens, Stendhal, Thackeray, all, you know, wrote travel books. Um, you know, there was a, there were literary travel books, but there were also books by written by explorers such as James Cook or, or Livingston on Mango Park or by naturalists such as uh, Humboldt or, or Darwin. So there, you know, there are, there are sort of more informationally angled travelogues and also more literary ones. And then there's a, in terms of Russian tradition of travel books, most of them actually describe travels to Europe. And here, the most important um, predecessor to uh, Gancharov is Nikolai Karamzin and his Letters of Russian Traveler, which describe his impressions of France and England. Uh, a little after uh, Gancharov's, we have Dostoevsky's Winter Notes on Summer Impressions. Uh, and then there was also a, a big tradition of uh, describing Russia, of travelogues describing Russia. And of course, beginning with Radishchev's journey from Moscow to St. Petersburg, um, um, that was the most famous, but there was a sort of deluge of later 19th century works describing various uh, parts of the Russian Empire. Um, in terms of uh, accomplished literary accounts of more exotic locations prior to Gancharov, um, of course, we need to mention uh, Alexander Pushkin's uh, journey to Erzurum, which described parts of the Caucasus and the, the, sort of the territories that were um, sort of fought over between the Ottoman and Russian empires. And then there was sort of also a, a sort of a massive output of travel accounts written by travelers without special literary talents or aspirations, you know, government officials, naval officers, people of various walks of life, and they would typically try to publish them. Now, against this sort of larger context uh, of Russian travel writing, Gancharov's book, I would say, stood out for Russian readers in a few key respects. Um, one, it was its undeniable and universally prized um, literary merit. Um, the second thing I'd mention is that um, readers really liked that Gancharov looked upon the world, as they put it, um, or some of the reviewers put it, with Russian eyes. So um, the readers felt that they could identify with his ways of viewing the world, that he sort of viewed the world through a recognizably Russian lens. There was what we would call now, it was a relatable piece of writing for them. So, um, and, but they also liked that without losing Russianness, Gacharov at the same time projected this very confident uh, air of Europeanness. So that's a very kind of a fortuitous, attractive uh, combination. And finally, um, what they also liked is that um, Gancharov put emphasis on, it was a very kind of informal, fun book to read with lots of humor and funny episodes and very chatty and witty. You know, their anecdotes were breaking up their narration, you know, so it, it wasn't too much about sort of packing information into a book as much as entertaining the reader, but also being very personable and embedding the narrator, the narrator, Gancharov's his own persona into these settings and, and showing everything from his own sort of personal um, point of view. So this was kind of a very um, winning formula to so to speak. You know, like you, like you said, the, the, the book is, one of the things it was appreciated for is that it is about how Russians or Ru Russian Gontarov being the one perceives other places, other peoples, other empires, the metropole versus the colony, and then, of course, Russia's larger place in this developing, modernizing world. And the British, of course, serve as a, a main important mirror 
for which to look at all of this and reflect upon. So how did Goncharov see the British Empire and the British people? That really is like the, the, a very, very important uh, part of the book. Um, you know, British Empire was hugely important for Goncharov, for his crewmen, other crew members, but also for the Russian imperial administration that sent this uh, this this voyage, this uh, this crew on the on the voyage. So we have to remember that you know this is mid nineteenth century. At that point, the British Empire is by far the biggest, richest, most extensive, and most innovative uh, empire. So you know it was an ineluctable uh, point of comparison for all empires with global aspirations, including Russia uh, and. I would say overall, Ganchara was incredibly impressed with the successes of uh, British expansion, with its you know, infrastructure improvements for the colonies, with its trade, the global span, and the, the sheer sort of economic and naval power of the British uh, Empire. And he's also extremely taken with the, very, at that point, fairly recent British invention um, of uh, sort of imperialism of free trade. So the idea was that, you know, Conquest and territorial uh, takeovers were expensive, whereas, you know, establishing a commercial relationship with a different country on terms that um, that benefited disproportionately the British Empire was a much better way of sort of exploiting that region and 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 a cheaper way and less less sort of you don't have to deal with the headaches of uh, you know slave rebellions and and all of that right so um, Gantorov was also kind of impressed with um, uh, the abolition of slave trade by the uh, British Empire and we have to remember that he he could have, he also had to temper his enthusiasm about this because we have to remember that at the time serfdom was still uh, in, in Russia, you know, still in force. It wasn't yet abolished. So, um, you know, so far as Gancharov can see, the British are excellent, highly competent imperialists. And yet, you know, with, along with the admiration for British successes comes a degree of resentment and jealousy, frankly. Uh, so Gancharov loves to take the British down a peg whenever he can in his narrative, you know, just gently poke fun at them. Uh, you know, um, um, there's uh, one, one passage in the book is there's, there's this famous um, comparison of uh, a British, stodgy British bourgeois merchant and a kind of a lovable uh, Russian landlord, landlord right, body. Uh, and this is actually one of the favorite passages um, of the book for Russian readers. And you know, you, you, there you get this kind of like uh, slothful but totally lovable, you know, Russian uh, landowner and this kind of a soulless machine of the of the of the Englishman. So um, again, you know, these things were sort of put there for a reason, and um, we do know that in private life, private life, Gancharov himself was um, an Anglophile. That's how his um, um, friends and family described him. But in the book, he kind of he strove to portray the British in such a way that his readers learn from their imperial successes, but at the same time, their national pride is tickled by the by the you know the subtle put downs of British. So this is a kind of a, a balancing, uh, a tricky balancing act. And another um, factor that complicated the, the the portrayal of the British in um, this book is the fact that as um, the travel was ongoing, the Crimean War was you know. Um, uh, happening. Actually, it, it began that the, the conflict began and that at a certain point, I think when they were in Manila, um, the Russian crew got a, a news that um, the military phase of the operations began and the British were about to attack. And we know that sort of the British were driving the whole coalition against Russia in the Crimean War. So, um, you know, to publish this travelogue, is on the one hand, he you know, loves the British as imperialists, right? And feels that Russians need to learn from it. But at the same time, he, um, you know, he, he, he has to sidestep these sensitivities around the British really being the main reason for uh, Russia's loss in that, in that war. Um, one other thing I would mention is that on the Crimean, um, uh, that the, on the Chinese, sorry, uh, leg of the journey, Gancharov, um, Gancharov's enthusiasm for the British lessens a little bit when he um, becomes very critical of the opium trade uh, of 
the British Empire in China, the, you know, the witnesses uh, scenes of brutal and demeaning treatment of the Chinese by the, by the English. So um, he, he sort of um, develops a, a more critical attitude at, at that point. But I would say overall, um, uh, the British Empire is basically a rival from which Russia must learn and which Russia must watch very carefully according to this travelogue. What's interesting is like he he first sees, he goes to London and he kind of observes the empire from the center. And and then, then but the majority of his trip is really seeing empire from the periphery. And in particular, you know, his next stop, I think it's his next stop is, is of course Cape Colony in South Africa. And he also has observations of British rule there. You say his observations of British rule, or at least British imperialism in China. Um, so how does he? How does he talk a bit more about how he sees British rule from the periphery, and particularly in in the African context? Because he has comments about the the Hausa people and makes comparisons to say the Caucasus or Caucasian peoples in the Russian Empire. Yeah. So um, yeah, I mean the, the the sort of the progression from London to Southern Africa and the, the Cape Colony, right? Was you know in London, Gancharov gets to see sort of the um, the various uh, institutions that power the British colonial enterprise, uh, and also you know various various museums and scholarly societies that distribute knowledge about various parts of the world, which is of course important for, for imperial ventures. And then he, you know, then the Russians sailed to um, to um, southern Africa, what was then the Cape Colony. And, and this was a place where the British recently replaced um, the former masters of the colony, the Dutch. So in Goncharov's chapter on South Africa, on, on the Cape Colony, actually, um, um, he makes a very strong argument about, or he, he shows how much, how infinitely better the British are at colonial, like, colonizing than the Dutch. Um, right, they build bridges and roads, and they rev up the economy. They uh, stimulate trade. They open new areas for expansion. Right, and compared with that, the Dutch are sort of sleepy and indolent underachievers, so to speak. Right, he's also very impress impressed by the political boldness um, of devolving most political power to the colony, giving it a constitution and some basic self-rule, you know, introducing representative government. So, so his overall image of the British Empire is on the one hand, the sort of competent um, colonizing enterprise and, and um, uh, strong economy, strong trade, right? Uh, you know, building this wonderful infrastructure in, on the tip of Africa. And on the same, on the, um, on the other hand, these, these um, uh, very progressive, um, from, from mid-19th century perspective, innovation of political rule. And we have to remember that, you know, things like representative government, constitution, these are things that Russians themselves didn't have at the time. Right? So there's this interesting undercurrent um, uh, in Gantzadov's descriptions of, the, of, Af African, uh, of, of uh, Southern Africa, um, in the sense that, you know, African colonies seems to have greater liberties than European Russia. Um, yeah, and this is actually not uh, an uncommon feature of travelogue. Oftentimes, certain aspects of foreign countries are highlighted or presented in, in travel books as a way of sort of um, contrasting um, conditions abroad or in other countries with domestic conditions. And sometimes you don't dot the I for your readers and sometimes you dot, you do. So here, for example, as you mentioned, um, um, the um, um, uh, at the time of Gancharov's visit and throughout most of the 19th century, um, uh, the ethnic group of, of Koza, they're spelled H-X-O-S-A, um, um, posed a really, really powerful anti-imperial challenge to the British. So there were all these wars, uh, right, happening even at the time. I think one of them was just uh, being concluded at the time of the Russians' arrival. And Gancharov, throughout his chapter, favors the rather brutal maneuvers of colonial authorities um, with respect to suppressing those uh, causa wars. Um, and here he is explicit in comparing these wars to Russia's own colonial wars 
um, in the Caucasus. So you can see sort of that Russia's own anxieties about being able to hold on to its own imperial conquests underlies the sort of expression of solidarity with the South African colonial government in Cape Town that was warring with and, and, and fighting with and, and trying to, with, with the Khaza tribes and trying to push them off their land. Yeah, I think it's important to, to, to remind people that before Crimea, the wars in the Caucasus were the main defining moment for that generation. Absolutely, right? yes. You know, for, for a lot of the literary figures we know, whether it's Tolstoy or Lermontov, the, the, the service in the Caucasus and the impact of those wars in Russian imagination are incredibly important. Yeah, you're absolutely right about that. And in fact, uh, the wars in Caucasus, in the Caucasus continued after the Crimean War was over. So this was uh, just like the Khaza Wars in South Africa, the, the Caucasian Wars in, in, in Russia in the 19th century were sort of the, the longest lasting and the most um, destabilizing to the empire conflict, military conflict. So, so given, given this, this comparison, imperial comparison, but also, you know, it, it's interesting as, a, as a, a, a child of merchants, and, you know, he sees the world in, in, through trade. Trade is something he pays a lot of attention to and comments on a lot. Uh, how does he fit, you know, how does he perceive this growing global system of trade and, and where an empire and where is Russia's, where does he see, see Russia's position in it? This is something, a, a, a part of the book or an aspect of the book that really captivated me. And it also happens to be Goncharov's own main discovery from the voyage. That is the degree, the, the incredible degree to which uh, the world was interconnected. Um, or, you know, in describing that new world order, uh, we really see Goncharov as uh, being very prescient, a prescient observer of what were basically um, accelerating forces of globalization. And he is also very acute in observing just how important uh, European imperialism and trade were to in, in ushering in that, that new global um, world order. He really, the, the main glue connecting the world, so far as Gantorov can see, is really trade. Um, so, um, and, and, and he comments a lot throughout this book on the this incredible, unprecedented upsurge of economic, political, Political, you know, diplomatic, cultural, military interconnections between different, very distant, often parts of the globe. So um, his main message to readers back home is basically: we can't afford to miss this boat. You know, Russia must catch up to its colonial rivals. It must become more present on global in imperial uh, frontiers. It must rival the British. It must become a global contender in resource extraction, in trade, in access to cheap labor markets. It must um, really um, build up his imperial enterprise. But it all, and it also must become a leader in promoting civilizing missions around the world, uh, and especially in Asia. And it was also certainly a message in East, for East Asia, uh, and also a message for for Siberia. So this this book really kind of it meshed perfectly with the sentiments of post Crimean reform, post Crimean reform era. Which is, you know, it wasn't just um, reform era didn't just mean domestic reforms like the judiciary or abolition of serfdom. It also means uh, it also meant modernizing um, instruments of empire, imperial technologies, imperial administration. So in that sense, um, you know, that message resonated very well with that particular historical situation. Did he ever comment or, or consider the difference in this, uh, between, say, the possibilities of Russian Empire versus, say, British Empire, in the sense that, you know, a British Empire is a transcontinental, mostly uh, a maritime empire, whereas Russia's empire is 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 a continental empire. Um, did this figure into his his understandings of of Russia's place in the wider imperial system? Um, I, th I think it did. He has a keen understanding of the fact that these are two different beasts, so to speak, right? That um, that Russia is a traditional overland continental empire. However, he also sees that um, um, the sort of he sees that Russia cannot be only a continental empire. He sees another continental traditional overland empire, Chinese one, being completely, you know, 
uh, on the verge of being dismantled by all these, you know, British, French, American um, imperial, you know, agents trying to basically assailing China's uh, China's um, sovereignty by by extracting treaties and and concessions and and all of that. So. Um, and in fact, the 1842 uh, British Opium War in China was the very reason, uh, or was that this was the moment when the Russian government began planning the whole um, expedition that then became the Frigate Palada expedition that I write about, right? Because they feel, okay, well, you know, the British and other Europeans are knocking at the gates of Asia. They're, they're, they're extracting treaties that give them incredibly lucrative trade. Uh, we cannot let that, we cannot sort of, we cannot let that happen in sort of in our Asian backyard, right? So uh, this is why um, uh, actually both the, uh, here the Americans and the Russians were in, in agreeing on one thing, which is that we have to get more active in the Pacific. The Pacific belongs to us. The British may own the Atlantic, but we have to own the Pacific. And this is actually the reason why, um, you know, the moment I describe um, is when both the United States government and the Russian governments are almost at the same time sending these missions to Japan because they see they, they can't, they have to sort of, they have to get there before the British get there. So, and, and then one other thing I would mention on the question of contiguity, we can't forget that um, while overland mostly, uh, Russia was an empire that lay on three continents. It had its European possessions, it had, you know, it's had its Asian uh, possessions. It also had its North American possessions, right, which were then yet not sold to the United States. So while sort of mostly overland, and this was something that definitely the Russian imperial government felt more comfortable with, there were many people in Russia, um, uh, in politicians, governors, um, members of the elite like Gantorov, who wanted to see um, Russia recapture some of that naval glory that was the prerogative of the British at the time. Yeah, it's interesting that uh, at this period of time, I mean, con especially considering the 20th century, that the United States and Russia were essentially allies Absolutely. through their mutual despise for the Absolutely, British. Absolutely, yes, <laughs> <did> very well. <laughs> because I was recently reading about the sale of Alaska and essentially the sale of Alaska to the United States and the buying of Alaska by the United States was to was to prevent the British from <laughs> from moving oh, in, that's right. which I, I which I found really really fascinating. So and and given that you know that the kind of secret quote unquote mission of this voyage is indeed to quote unquote open Japan. Right there's this. It's not a race with the Americans, but you know it, it's kind of in tandem with the Americans to 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 increase both their influences in East Asia to counter or at least to prevent British more British penetration beyond China. So um talk about this so-called opening and and how Goncharov saw Japan and the Japanese. Yeah, so um uh what basically happened is that Japan by the mid 19th century had been closed to Western trade for trade for nearly two centuries. Uh, except for a very small and tightly supervised Dutch presence. Um, so um, both the U.S. and Russia felt they had compelling interests in Japan. For the U.S., this was basically coal refueling bases for its steamships that were heading for China. Uh, and for Russia, um, I mean, there were many, but these are some of the main ones, right? For Russia, this was um, basically Russian, Russians needed produce to provision its Eastern Siberian and North American colonies and overland transport uh, across Siberia at that point was really not an option. I mean, it took months to cross uh, Siberia with, you know, in the absence of roads and other transport infrastructure. So both Russians and Americans had their eyes open, uh, had their eyes on Japan, and um, basically each government sent its gunboats to compel Japan to open up to Western trade. Uh, as I write in my book, Matthew Perry got there first um, and is now credited with opening up, so to speak, Japan. But the Palada Russians followed on his heels and got arrived in Japan five weeks later and conducted their own negotiations. And they resulted in uh, a treaty of uh, Shimoda that was actually more extensive and advantageous uh, than the American treaty. So parts of my book, so, so part of my book um, uh, or 
part of the point of my book is to counter the pericentrism of this moment in, in East Asian history to basically write my Russians more decisively into it. And I certainly don't claim that I'm the only person doing it. There was a, a work of a very excellent historian, George Lenson, um, a few decades before, who uh, also pioneered this project, but um, I'm trying to sort of um, alert uh, a larger humanistic community than Russians were very much uh, part of this uh, project. So, um, um, you know, the way that Gancharov thinks about Japan prior to arriving there is that he has this image of the locked, locked casket to which the key has been lost. Part of the Palata expedition's task was basically to find that key. Um, and, and this, the Russians did very well. Um, uh, and, um, you know, um, in fact, uh, I mean, this is a rather long and complicated story that I won't try to retell here, but I think they were, the way they played the Americans was very, very canny, right? And uh, there's a term that I think fits this circumstance, this, this case well, and, and it's basically hitchhiking imperialism. So, you know, let the Americans exert themselves you know, and push and push and, and compel Japan to open uh, open its ports. And we're just going to hover just close enough so that we can profit from the Americans' exertions, right? And that's not exactly entirely describes what happens, but I think uh, the Russian government's approach to this um, project was um, very interesting and, and kind of smart, I would say. So um, the question of sort of how did Gancharov see Japan and the Japanese? Um, it kind of depends on the moment in the journey and the narrative perspective of a given passage. Um, you know, as I explained in my book, consistency is not a common virtue of uh, travel books. Uh, if you, once you try to homogenizing anything, you know, Gantel's views on X, you know, this always comes with, with some perils. Um, but I would say that when the, the general tendencies that was when he viewed the Japanese en masse sort of as a population, uh, de-individuated crowd, uh, he mostly viewed them through rather arrogant uh, Eurocentric lens as, you know, civilizationally inferior, effete, cowardly, uh, irrational. Um, he also frequently, frequently racializes the Japanese as he does with other ethnicities or other other groups of people on this voyage, and um, you know he ridicules Japanese customs. This is sort of there that happened to be the stuff of comedy in the in the travelogue. Uh, at other times, however, he seems um, sympathetic and much impressed with aspects of Japanese culture. He has these flashes of understanding. Um, and during the negotiations, in which he actually played a very important role, some of the Japanese uh, uh, thought that uh, he was uh, the commander, Sputyatin's, you know, second main advisor, basically second in command. So during the negotiations, Gantorov became quite friendly with many of his Japanese counterparts. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, he, there were some sort of warm episodes of, of those interactions. Um, however, to characterize his attitude towards the Japanese as one of um, humanitarian respect or, um, you know, benevolence, as many Soviet critics did, is a bit of an exaggeration. I would say there is um, a kind of disturbing undercurrent of violence and dehumanization in Gantov's descriptions. He's quite comfortable with the notion of Russian cannons uh, beginning the job of quote-unquote civilizing, you know, of bending Japan to Russia's will. Um, so um, there is this kind of a very um, hawkish and, and um, prejudiced, I would say, undercurrent in Gancharov's descriptions. However, we also have to keep in mind that um, Gancharov's descriptions are one thing, the sort of the, his musings and his thoughts and his impressions of people and situations and places. And then an entirely separate thing is how the Russian crew actually conducted itself. And here what we find is that the Russians were in fact much less racist and much more considerate uh, to deal with than the Americans. And this is actually to this day appreciated in the Japanese historical memory of this episode. So they remember Russians more fondly than they did Americans who, who are much more um, kind of arrogant and difficult to deal with. So I think this is something that we have to keep in mind. 
Um, this is a book that, uh, you know, has, you know, gives readers certain representations, but the stakes of those representations are very complex. They also may be rooted in Gonshadov's personal, you know, uh, sentiments and thoughts. But what sort of ha- the reality on the ground was that, um, you know, the, the Russians were much more respectful of Japanese customs and more conciliatory than were the Americans. Now, th- this, of course, leads into the question, uh, and one you deal with is is how he deals with uh, the diversity of peoples that he encounters in general, and the question of which is a a big scholarly debate about the the place of race and racism in uh, Russian uh, intellectual you know discourse. Um, so, how do, what is he? How does what are some of his observations about this this wide diversity of encounters of peoples and cultures that he has in this long journey, and how does it link up with you know Russian understandings of race and ethnicity in the nineteenth century? Well, um, this is an incredibly complex question, which is why I decided to devote a, a whole separate chapter to it. Um, I would say that my most important finding in this book is that uh, conceptions of race figure very prominently in Gonchorov's descriptions. And this actually piggybacks on important work by historians such as Vera Tolz, who recently wrote that race was a category of Russian thinking as early as the 1830s and the 40s. And this was actually a, a, you know, a very difficult um, part of my project to write about. Um, you know, racial prejudices in this book can be incredibly demeaning. I mean, you know, sort of monkey joke level and worse. So, um, and we also see in Gonchadov's uh, travel of a creeping racialization of the categories of ethnicity and nation. So, um, which definitely ethnicity and nation were definitely his main his main conceptual categories. Um, and I would say it is important uh, to stress um, uh, the sort of the layers of prejudice and racialization because, again, this, the Soviet critical tradition has treated this book not not only as anti-colonial, if you can imagine outlandish propositions such as this one, but also as a kind of as a shiny example of Russian tolerance and humanitarianism. So. You, you really, really, really need to work against that because that is simply not supported by uh, the textual evidence. But, you know, Gantel's perceptions of human difference were incredibly varied. And, you know, rather than sort of just subsume them and quickly label the various, uh, you know, offensive um, aspects of it, I'm also trying to understand how do various situations prompt certain biased types of behavior? You know, what is the dynamic of the situation to really get at the ways in which um, uh, bias and prejudice can occur? And I also um, argue that, you know, this is a, these perceptions of human difference are, incre- are incredibly varied in Gantrodov's account. And at some point, I actually pick a sample seven-page section of the book and just basically, um, you know, go through it sentence by sentence practically or paragraph by paragraph. And if you do that, it's kind of like watching a firework explode you know? <laughs> because it's, it's just so disorienting. You know, you have like sympathy uh, and repulsion, benevolence and malice. You know, here you have some um, understanding of, you know, next sentence, you're going to have some prejudice and hostility, truism, aggression, uh, you know, um, sort of ethnographic detachment in one paragraph and then comedic, comedic ridicule in another one. So it's really sort of, it's just to go through the seven page you know, uh, fragment. And to see these incredible alternations in sentiment and mood really gives us something, shows us something about how travelogues work. It shows us the exertions that, you know, Gancharov, um, um you know, had to make just to sort of to process this, um, these very, very radical forms of human difference that to which he wasn't exposed uh, before. You know, after his his travels in East Asia, then he makes this long overland journey uh, through his hometown of Simbirsk and all the way back to St. Petersburg. So how how does does he see? Do you get a sense? Did his travels until that point change how he perceived Siberia and the peoples of Siberia, which of course is ethnically diverse as well? Uh, yeah, great question. Um, we, um, I, I don't know what 
um, or we don't have a text, we don't have textual material to judge what what uh, Goncharov's impressions of Siberia were prior to the voyage. But certainly in the way that he writes Siberian chapter, we we see that he's approaching um, you know this this um, Russia's own uh, Asian uh, colony from the perspective of having seen other colonies of other empires, other forms of, of imperial management and organization. And there's also a sense that he writes um, about Siberia in such a way that he, he knows that comparisons will be made between, say, you know, um, uh, whatever the Russians are doing in Siberia and uh, a similar, uh, you know, uh, settler colony in Africa, say, right? So um, his way, you know, the, the way that he decides to pitch Siberia in this travelogue is basically to make it into Russia's uh, colonizing success story. In answer to the British, uh, that in some ways is even superior uh, to, the, to the British uh, uh, colonial, uh, you know, ventures. Uh, it's not an argument, I would say, that he pulls uh, very well. Um, and having examined Gancharov's correspondence from the voyage and various other documents of the expeditions, uh, you know, you can see that um, it was basically a carefully groomed image for public consumption that does not always correspond, uh, you know, to even to Gancharov's own actual impressions as recorded in his private correspondence, right? we see him being much more critical of Siberia's administration, of the imperial government, um, you know, the, the Siberian vistas are much more gloomy and depressing and he's frustrated by how badly things work, right? Um, so again, in reading travelogues, we can't assume that, uh, rep that, that, that what's in them is an, a sincere and honest reflection of someone's view, right? And when we happen to have a, a different set of documents by the same author that shows discrepancies, that's, that's, that's something that it helps to, to bring that discrepancy into view. So uh, the Siberian sections of uh, the Frigate Palata are basically a boosterist image intended to paint Siberia in the best of light for future settlers or for their advocates. Um, he is revels in the accomplishments of Russian peasants, paints the government as effective and competent. It was not. <laughs> so, and, and also his, the big vista of his narrative is basically the gradual and in, in inexorable Russification of Siberia, the binding of Siberia with the Russian national bo body, right? So the, 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 what he champions in the book is the disappearance of differences between the two. And he he's also applauds all instances where Russian culture is displacing native ones. So, you know, as he moves westward across Siberia, Goncharov revels in what I call the ascending gradient of, of Russianness. But here, maybe one other thing that I would say about Siberia and something that a point that I make in my book and that's very close to my heart is that the whole question of colonialism. So what's, what's interesting in Gantelov's portrayal of Siberia is that he scrupulously avoids any language of colonialism. He freely, in every other chapter of the book, right, whenever he's in the territories of other empires, but scrupulously avoids any such linguistic markers in the Siberian chapters. Even though he shows Siberia to operate in, in much, you know, like the settler colonies in Southern Africa. So, you know, you have a land acquired through conquest or annexation, you know, it's ruled for instrumental needs of the metropole, it's exploited for natural and other economic resources. Um, you know, you have the taking away of land from native people and giving them to European settlers. So, you know, these are the things that define Western European colonies. And this is something also that we see in Gantelov's descriptions of Siberia. The only difference being that he doesn't use the label itself. So, um, however, I did find him use that, uh, definitely use that label in his private correspondence. Again, the, the contrasts are really quite, quite revealing. So, um, you know, my main point in the Siberian chapter is to illuminate the coloniality of Siberia as Gantelov described it, even though he avoided the label itself. And here, um, I, I, I think the historian Alan Wood uh, puts it really well when he claims that Siberia's 
contiguity has obscured its coloniality. And I think that's really, really well put. Um, however, Gancharov's manner of writing about Siberia allows me to bring that coloniality out of this obscurity. Uh, and, you know, sure, we have, um, there were Russians who, you know, now, and there were Russians before, and not only Russians who uh, protest against applying colonial categories to Siberia, um, but, you know, there are all kinds of different of complex political agendas for doing so. And also, I feel that we cannot let um, the self-descriptions of historical actors dictate what, you know, scholars and analysts later think are appropriate analytical paradigms for, you know, describing Siberian history or its place in the Russian Empire. So, you know, there was a time when the French did not consider Al Algeria Equality, you know, and I don't see imperial historians of France, you know, stopping their tracks by that. So I, I think we similarly we shouldn't be deterred by that. And when we talk about the topic of of Siberia and Gajarov's travelogue, oh boy, surely provides ample uh, material to to really illuminate that aspect of Siberian history. That was Yadita Boyanovska, professor of Slavic languages and literatures at Yale University specializing in 19th century Russian literature and intellectual history, empire, and nation in Russian culture. She's the author of A World of Empires, The Russian Voyage of the Frigate Palada, published by Harvard University Press. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and this is the SRB Podcast. The SRB Podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and listeners like you. If you enjoyed this podcast and want to help support it, please take a moment to share it on Facebook and Twitter, like my Facebook page, Sean's Russia Blog, write a review, or recommend the show to your friends. The SRB podcast comes cheap, but it is not free to make. You can help support it by joining the table of ranks at srbpodcast.org. Thanks to all my high excellencies, high wellborns, and noblenesses for your continued patronage. And you can find past shows on iTunes and SoundCloud, or you can download them directly from srbpodcast.org as well. Until next time, bye. Big and too